Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. It's really good to be in church today. I hope you feel the same way. Great to see people we haven't seen in a long time. Kumbi, so good to see you. My goodness. Wow. Incredible. Uh, Kumbi over here uh, has been, was part of our church for years and years and years, and uh, uh, she was just an extraordinary example of how to love people right. And uh, that's, if you think about Kumbi, you think she loves people in the right way. So it's just really good to, really good to see you. Yeah, we missed you. And uh, we're hoping you'll extend your stay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when anyone decides to follow Christ, when you make that decision to follow Jesus, there's an, uh, there's an expectation. Uh, in, in your heart, uh, that there's going to be a change, a change for the better. Uh, when I see people come to faith, I expect that something's going to change in their life. This expectation of transformation when we follow Christ is, is not only shared by, uh, uh, by you, but it's also shared by friends and family and also by God. God expects there to be a transformation in your life. It's the reality. If you've ever been asked to write out your experience of following Jesus Christ uh, in order to, sh to write your testimony down, there's going to be two parts. Usually there's going to be the part that we call B.C., before Christ. What was my life? B.C. And then what was my life? A.C., after Christ. Uh, and, and we're looking for transformation. We have that expectation whenever we write these out that there's going to be a transformation. In my own experience, uh, along with a great deal of depression, self-absorption and selfishness, pride. Uh, I had a substantial inability to love. I struggled really to, to love people. Uh, I neither felt love, uh, I felt quite numb actually, uh, nor did I express love to others well. I didn't seem to have the ability to be able to muster enough, uh, enough energy to be able to express love and to, to love people properly. I was especially bothered in my life by a lack of affection for members of my own family. In addition to a miracle of abundant joy in my life after I gave my life to Christ, uh, there was this tremendous outpouring of felt love for others. I was overwhelmed with compassion for others, uh, including members of my family that I had been concerned about previously, and an outpouring of God's power in my life to express this love to others in very significant ways. All of a sudden I was empowered, I, I felt it, and I had the power and the energy to be able to express this love and do acts of service to, to my family and others in ways that I had never been able to do before. Uh, I, I had been forgiven so much and been loved so deeply by the Spirit of God uh, that His Spirit poured out in me uh, to others in ways that I had never experienced before in my life. Uh, I can recall several awkward moments soon after I'd given my life to Christ uh, of me expressing love to friends in a way that was uncomfortable for them. <laughs> I was just so excited and so full of love that I would run to people and just tell them and hug them. And, um, and there was this moment of, who are you? It's not the Brian we used to know. I can remember making notes to myself after those awkward encounters. Let's work on increasing your social awareness, Brian. Uh, <laughs> The Bible has these stories of when 
people have been transformed by Jesus, they, they express their love in this kind of awkward, uncomfortable way. There's several stories here that come to mind that every one of the, the apostles who wrote in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote about specifically about women who so overwhelmed by the forgiveness and love that they had received from Jesus Christ expressed this incredible, awkward, uh, culturally controversial expression of love to Jesus. Uh, in, in this case, it usually involved a very expensive uh, container of perfume where they poured this either on the feet of Jesus or on the head of Jesus and uh, usually accompanied by tears, weeping, and so there were tears dropping on Jesus as they anointed uh, Jesus with perfume, and so they would wipe off the tears with their own hair. And you see this, we know it was awkward because the people who were in the room with Jesus when this took place were uncomfortable, and they expressed it. Matter of fact, so much so that uh, they got on to the women for doing this incredible thing for Jesus, which then was followed by Jesus correcting them for correcting her. Jesus always appreciated the love and received it. In these, in these scenarios, um, it's always a woman who had been forgiven of many sins or had been loved by Jesus in a very special way. In the case of, of Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, uh, she uh, had seen Jesus raise her brother, uh, bring him back to life. And so he, before Jesus was put on the cross, Mary, the, the, the sister of Lazarus, uh, anointed Jesus on his feet uh, in this incredible expression of love. In each story, the women have no social or cultural concern for what anyone thinks of what they've done. They don't care. They just unabashed loved Jesus. To, to each, each have this kind of undignified love for Christ knowing but not caring that it broke every social norm. In our story today, I want to uh, look at Luke chapter 7. Uh, it's a story, I believe, a different story. You have, uh, I think, three different accounts on different situations where women actually did this for Jesus, express this love. Uh, we see it in uh, Matthew, Mark, I think is the same story. In the book of John, it's the sister of Lazarus. In Luke, it's a lady uh, who is unnamed, who comes uh, to a Pharisee's house, uh, uninvited, knowing that Jesus was sitting with this Pharisee, Simon, having dinner with him, and she comes in unannounced and just walks in and begins, she stands behind Jesus, and she begins weeping uncontrollably over Jesus' feet, cleans the tears off of Jesus' feet with her hair, and then anoints his feet with this very, very expensive uh, perfume. Uh, so expensive it would be compared to like giving a diamond to, to Jesus. Very expensive perfume, anointing him and incessantly kissing his feet. Luke chapter 7 uh, tells us that the Pharisee who's, who was hosting, his name was Simon, um, was thinking to himself, if this guy, surely this guy knows that he, he must not be a prophet because he must not be aware of, the, of what this woman has been up to. I mean, she's a woman of really bad reputation. Why would Jesus allow her to do this for him? This story really overwhelms me uh, when I think about it. Uh, just this unabashed, deep expression of love for Jesus. Uh, it's... it's 
it's overwhelming to me every time I read it and study this story because I just realized that in my own life there are gaps in how I'm willing to love Jesus myself and how I'm willing to express my affections for him and how I'm willing to express my affections for others. I'm very often very concerned about what people think about my expression uh, rather than just loving Jesus. I've been forgiven a lot, and those who've been forgiven a lot love a lot. That's what he says here in Luke chapter 7. After this woman comes in and does this for him, he says this, explaining to his host, Simon, he says, look, Luke, Luke chapter 7, verse 47, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven, which was... <laughs> which the comeback from Simon was, who does this guy think he is? He goes around forgiving sins. And Jesus went on to say, your faith has saved you, go in peace. You see the graciousness of the Father. Jesus is so gracious and appreciative of this outpouring of love. He corrects the one who's correcting the woman. The heart of God you see is to forgive and to save. And we see this throughout scripture. It would be very difficult for us to make a biblical case for the wrath of God over the love of God. If you want to weigh out the two, the emphasis in Scripture, it's always the love of God always outweighs the wrath and punishment of God through Scripture. I challenge you to read Scripture and see what character of God do we see most. We see His love. We see His forgiveness. We see His pity. We see Him weeping over Jerusalem and wanting to give the people of Israel, one last chance to come and follow him and to have their sins forgiven. We see this graciousness of God. We see it as he's dealing with so many in Scripture. In this case, it's women who've, who've experienced rejection, women who've experienced a, life, uh, a lifestyle of sin. We see this with a woman who was caught in adultery. John writes about this woman who was caught in adultery. And the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus. You know the story. Jesus doesn't say anything, but he bends down to the ground and he writes in the sand. And then he stands up and says, the one of you who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. We see this pity. Jesus looks at the woman who's caught in adultery and says, where are your accusers? All gone. He says, neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. We see this with Mary Magdalene who came to Jesus and the Bible tells us specifically that she had at least seven demons that Jesus released her from. And in Mary Magdalene's case, we see this incredible outpouring of love back to Jesus because of what Jesus had done for her. We see Mary walking and moving with Jesus as he's in ministry. We even have evidence of her investing financially into the ministry of Jesus. We see this over-the-top compassion for Christ because of what Christ had done in Mary's life. Mary Magdalene was the first person that Jesus saw after he rose again. And Mary is concerned about every aspect of Jesus' life. We see this in her story, this unbelievable love for Christ because of what Christ had done for her. You see, a person who's been forgiven a lot does what? Loves a lot. And not only is this usually a side effect of, of following Jesus Christ, 
But it's also the expectation of your friends and family and the expectation of God that once you have been forgiven from God that you would also have a lifestyle of forgiveness accompanied by deep love. So why is it that when we've been forgiven a lot, we love a lot? Maybe it's because we understand others in, in a more understanding way. We, we give them the benefit of doubt because we've also realized that we've also blown it. We're aware of our sin, and so we can understand why this person would also do the same thing that we have done. And we also are aware that God can forgive that person the same way that God forgave us. The removal of judgment creates a more loving person, right? When you stop judging people because you have not been judged, you become a more loving person. There's also that spirit-filling aspect of following Jesus Christ. When you've been forgiven, the Spirit of God infills your life, and so you, you have the empowering of Jesus Christ to be able to, to love. There's a softening of your heart that takes place, a softening of your soul. The heart of stone becomes a malleable, pliable heart again that is able to love because of the miracle of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. You no longer see anyone as beyond hope because you see what God has done for you. Jesus gives us this full picture in Scripture, though, that not everyone who's expected to love loves after they've been forgiven a lot. We see this in a parable he told about the servant who owed the king millions of dollars. The king was about to throw this servant in jail to sell him and sell his family. And when the servant came to the king and begged for forgiveness and, and begged for uh, leniency, then what did the king do? The king, the Bible tells us, that the king was filled with, with pity, was filled with compassion for the servant, and he forgave him his entire debt. The expectation of this servant then was that he would go to people that owed him money and be nice to them as well, but he didn't. After he was forgiven the millions, he went to people who owed him thousands and put them in prison until they paid the full amount. This bothered people around this servant who went to the king and reported, remember that guy you forgave millions? He's putting people in prison for thousands. And so the king got a hold of him again, said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant because I gave you mercy? Jesus says in the parable, the heavenly father will do for you the same that this king did for the servant if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. There is an expectation from God that once we've been forgiven, that we would also forgive, that we would also love. In the case of this woman who had been forgiven many sins and is anointing Jesus, it was fact for her and it's how she lived her life. But for others, it's still a choice, right? We're still in the, in the business of having to choose to love because we've been loved. We had a man recently who came to our house uh, extraordinarily drunk. He rang the front door, <laughs> the front door bell and asked for food. And we came out, I brought him some food. I had some fresh apples I had just bought and some other fruit, really good stuff. Handed it to him. He looked at me, he was drunk. And he said, uh, what is this? I want hot food. <laughs> and he started throwing the fruit I'd given him down the street in the gutter and, and, uh, and he walked off. Several weeks later, he came back and rang the doorbell again and asked for food. 
And I had decided from the time I'd seen him the last time that if he was drunk when he rang my doorbell, I would not give him food because I wanted him not to throw the food away. He was drunk, asked for food, and I said, listen, I, I would love to help you, but last time I gave you food, you threw it away. And so he began to scream at me because even in his drunken stupor, he had the expectation that I would still forgive and love him no matter what he did. He started walking down my street, screaming at the top of his lung, Pasta! He knew I was a pastor. Pasta! Pasta must forgive! Pasta must forgive! He screamed that all the way down my street. I could hear him around turning the corner. Pasta must forgive! My neighbors were looking over the wall, or what's going on? Even the craziest of crazy expect that when you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will love and be better than the rest. There's an expectation that when Christ comes into your life, you're going to be transformed. Look at 1 John 4, verse 7. This is the writer, the, the, the Apostle John, writing late in his life is saying this. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from where? From God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. There's this expectation. When you've been forgiven much, you love much. And I believe this is where we need to really work on our affections. Uh, we need to come before God and say, God, what does this look like for me? The passage goes on in Luke chapter 7 and says this, Luke 7 verse 47, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven so that she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. There's a direct line and a connection between uh, our degree of forgiveness and how much we love. And so for us to be able to figure out how we can love more effectively, we need to figure out how we can be forgiven. For us to love, we need to understand what our problem is about God's forgiveness. As we think this morning about this, when you consider your life and evaluate your life, when you say, how am I loving? Am I loving effectively? We need to start with, have I been forgiven adequately? Have I understood His forgiveness? Have I received His forgiveness? Have I experienced this transformation that would spur me on to love in a way that is different? I think for a lot of us, we are ignorant of our sins. I, I know for me, uh, I've just been unaware. I've asked the question as a younger believer, I said, is this, is this wrong for me to do? Uh, you probably asked that question. I know that I've had many conversations with people who ask the question, I think I should do this, but is this wrong? It's just a, a level of ignorance. We just don't know. We just don't know very often what's right and what's wrong in certain contexts. Not aware of what we've done. Not aware that we have done it against God. That's what we do as parents with our children. We're always working with our children to help them understand when you do this, it, makes, it has this impact, therefore it is wrong. We also teach, if you do this, this is a good thing. This is what you should do. It's ignorance. We all have to be taught. I believe one reason why we haven't been forgiven is that we're not aware that we've even sinned. And we don't know to the degree to which it is. We're not aware that we've done it against God. We're not aware that God has authority to forgive or wants to forgive. Funny enough, we have expert vision when it comes to others, though, right? 
We're experts on where other people have blown it. <laughs> We're not very good at evaluating ourselves. John, again, wrote extensively about this. He says, if we claim that we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves. We're not living by the truth. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. Awareness. Awareness. This is a lack of awareness. So what do we do in that situation where we're not aware? We go to God who sees everything for God to help us understand truly the depth of our sin. This was the prayer of, of David, Psalms 139. Search me, O God. And what? Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I would suggest that you go to God first. If you're brave, go to your friends and ask them, you know, where you've messed up. They will know. And if you're willing to allow them graciously to tell you, receive it. Sometimes your, your friends can see what's in your life much better than you can. But we shouldn't be walking around ignorant of our sin and therefore not experiencing the forgiveness of God that leads to deep love of others and deep love of Him. We don't want to sit in our sin. Lord, show me. Show me. We underestimate God's love and we overestimate His wrath. God invites us to confess our sin to Him. He invites us to ask Him, God, show me. And God will reveal it and God will help you overcome. I think also, too, there's this seared conscience idea, possibly in our life, where we've embraced a culture of sin, a culture of sin, maybe in, the, uh, in our culture that we live in, in our family context, in our social context, we've embraced certain social sins that have become commonplace. And we justify those sins because everyone is doing it. It, it seems to be the right thing. There's a lot of cultural issues that we've been raised in. Possibly there's sin in the generations of our family that we've decided is okay because our parents say it's okay and our parents have encouraged this. Maybe a particular sin has been encouraged by, by your people from, from what, wherever you can remember it. We see this very often with sexual sin that is justified by the culture that we live in. We see this very often with issues of racism. Very often our culture says, no, those people are bad. They've always been bad. We've never loved those people. And therefore we, are, we feel justified because, my goodness, our entire family walks this way. Our conscience have been seared because we've listened to lies. Look what 1 Timothy 4 says. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So we've adopted and begun to worship those, those cultural norms, those demonic spirits who've pervaded in our family and our culture, and we have followed those, and our conscience has been seared. We've adopted this as our lifestyle. Sin has become habitual. Sin has become a lifestyle. And in many cases, this particular type of sin has become a religion. We see it so often pervasive in our culture where this particular type of sin is embraced not only by our family and the culture but also religious institutions who say no this is the right way to be could be that's where you sit 
and therefore you've not experienced the forgiveness of God and been transformed into a person who loves deeply. It's also possible that you have a wrong point of reference. Our, our comparison needle is off. Possibly what we consider to be good is in reference not to God, but to something less than God. And so as we're comparing, oh, this is good, but look what they're doing. We're not comparing what we're doing to the standard of God. Could be our reference point is off. I just sent uh, my youngest son and his wife and family uh, back to the States. They got on a plane. And before they were, before they were getting on a plane, they, we were weighing luggage. If you've flown, you know, you always have to weigh your luggage. I have bought this really cute thing from Cape Union Mart that uh, can hook on the handle of my suitcase and I can lift it up like this and I can see the weight of it on my hand. Have you seen those things? That's really kind of cool. It keeps you from having to stand on your own scales, holding the suitcase and trying to look around. Have you done that before? Looking around at your scales. You weigh yourself first, then you pick up the suitcase and you get the total weight and you're begging someone to come. It's usually a two-person uh, you know, feature here where you're begging the other person to come. Could you please look at what it says before I drop the suitcase? Yeah. So I one problem with my cute device from Kid Unimart. It's a few kilograms off. I can't tell you the number of times I've weighed my suitcases with that device, gone to the airport to check my bags in and say, you're overweight. But my, but my cute Cape Union Mark scales said it was fine. Well, you're not fine. So our reference point is off. So now when we weigh the suitcases, we add a few kilograms and we're always good. Reference point to the standard, not the device. The fact of the matter is, is that none of us are righteous. Not a single one of us are righteous when we're compared to God. It really doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks about what we're doing. It only matters what God thinks. And ultimately, I have to answer to God. Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already changed that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We've all turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Paul goes on to write about how horrible we really are. I don't have it on the screen for you, but it says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. In other words, Whenever they speak, snake poison comes out. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Romans 3.23, though, says this, and I have this on screen for you. For all have sinned, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Greatest love story ever told, right? Not one of us can bring our good works to him. Because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. As we compare ourselves to others, say, well, I'm better than this other person, but you're not better than God. One reason why we don't come for forgiveness is because we can make a strong case that we are somehow better than everyone else around us. A little bit of self-righteousness, right? A little bit of comparison to the wrong thing. Next to God, we don't stand a chance. But because of God, we stand a chance. 
The prophet Isaiah said that everything that we do that seems good and right is like a, a dirty rag, filthy rags. Our best righteousness is dirty before God. We need salvation for Christ, all of us. Maybe our reference point is off. It's possible, too, we've not been forgiven because we don't understand that God has authority to forgive. And only God has authority to give. We doubt God's capacity. We doubt God's authority. And very often we overestimate his wrath and underestimate his love. The heart of God is to show pity and compassion on his creation. And he has authority, and only Christ has authority to forgive. That's why Jesus very easily said to the woman who anointed him with perfume, what did he say? Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The reaction from Simon, the Pharisee who was hosting him, was like, well, who does this, <laughs> what is he doing? He even forgives sin? We are no different than Simon, though, are we? We look at what God has done in somebody's life and we go, really, that guy? You've changed him? We doubt the capacity of God to go deeper than anyone's sin and change lives. God not only has capacity, he has authority. And this is something that God has done. The exclusivity of Christ only to forgive our sins as well. The authority and the capacity only comes through Jesus Christ to be forgiven, to be made right with him, to be transformed. It's possibly that you've not been forgiven this morning because you have doubted the authority of, through Jesus Christ to save you. And maybe you've doubted his capacity to change you. Maybe you've looked at yourself and you've thought to yourself, I am too far gone. There is nothing in me that God could ever forgive. That God's capacity is deeper than your sin. Peter, who had been transformed, Peter, who denied Christ three times, stood empowered by the Spirit of God. He said, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. 1 John 5, John again writing. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And, <coughs> and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has what? Life. Whoever does not have this God's Son does not have life. It's exclusively Christ. Christ has the authority. Christ has the capacity. Maybe you've not experienced his forgiveness because you've doubted his authority, doubted his capacity. And therefore, you don't love well because you've not been forgiven much. The key to loving much is much forgiveness in our life. I'm not sure what your roadblock is this morning, but, but let's evaluate ourselves, right? We walking around with bad doctrine, bad theology, bad understanding of God. So much so that we refuse to accept this forgiveness that's freely given to us. God offers this forgiveness and love, not because we deserved it, but because Jesus has paid for it. And Jesus has the capacity and authority to do so. 
Why? Why was this woman in an undignified, countercultural way loving Jesus? Because she had been forgiven much. Is it possible that the release of true love, the release of compassion to a lost world will come only when we also have been forgiven much? This morning, I invite you not to doubt the capacity of God, not to doubt His authority, not to be ignorant of your sin, not to have bad reference points, but to evaluate yourself based on the incredible authority, capacity, and love and compassion of God the Father. That's the invitation. God so loved the world, right? That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Possibly we need to look at ourselves and remind ourselves again of how we've been forgiven, if you've been forgiven this morning. And that's why I think the reason why God asked us to do the Lord's Supper, the communion, is that we would remember what an incredible sacrifice Jesus did for us and how how much we've been forgiven so that we would constantly put in front of us this remembrance of what God has done in our lives. So that when we're being asked to love something, someone or to be compassionate in the situation, that we can be because of how God has loved us. We can love in a way that is undignified. We can love in a way that's countercultural because we've been forgiven much. God invites you to experience the peace of this forgiveness. And God invites you to experience the love that comes from this forgiveness. God is faithful to forgive if we just open. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, we can bring so much before you as a good argument to why we are not forgiven, why we will not be forgiven. But Lord, every one of those arguments falls short of your grace, falls short of your love. And so God, we come to you not because we deserve your love, but Father, you have provided a way for us to experience your love. Lord, this morning, as New Song Family Church, we affirm, God, that you are the only one who has the authority to forgive. Lord, you're the only one who has the capacity to forgive. Lord, we acknowledge your standard of excellence, Father, and know that only you are the one who can bring us to that level. Oh, Lord, we ask, God, that you can reveal to us this morning, what is our sin? What's the roadblock that's keeping us from experiencing this incredible love? We love you, Jesus, and thank you for this time. And Lord, we do thank you, God, for the incredible salvation that's given to us. We praise you, God. This is Rico Veca, and I'm also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you'll join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.